Well, please do turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, and this morning we shall be considering uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through to chapter 6, verse 3. In the previous passage, um, the, uh, the writer has been speaking about Jesus, our great high priest, and uh, he has just introduced the subject of Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a subject that he will um, turn to in more detail a bit later on in uh, in his letter. But we uh, we begin our reading at verse eleven of uh, of chapter five. Let us hear God's word about this. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic (coughs) principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Our passage this morning is about the subject of spiritual maturity. It's about growing as a Christian. It's about becoming the people that God has called us to be, that God wants us to be. And our passage divides naturally into two sections. We have in verses 11 to 14 of uh, chapter 5, the preacher issuing a rebuke to the uh, Hebrews, rebuking them for their spiritual sluggishness. And then in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, we see uh, the, uh, the writer to the Hebrews Uh, calling on this particular congregation to grow in maturity, to become better and stronger and godlier Christians. So those are the the two uh, matters that we shall consider this morning as we go through our passage. First of all, we see in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 5, a rebuke for spiritual sluggishness. Now, 
As you read through the book of Hebrews, you will quite often see the, the preacher, whoever he was, encouraging the Hebrews. We actually see that a bit later on in chapter 6, verse 9. And he punctuates his sermon with various encouragements as as a good preacher, a good pastor ought to do. But here we see the preacher giving this particular congregation a rather firm rebuke. And again, that is something that a pastor will often need to do. Sometimes rebukes and admonishments are necessary in pastoral ministry as well as encouragements. And having uh, introduced the, 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 the vitally important subject of the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ and how he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we see the writer going on to say in verse 11, now about this, about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. In other words, what the preacher is saying here is, I have a lot to say about this particular subject of Jesus being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and actually I am going to speak more about this subject a little bit later on, as you can see in chapter 7, but it is hard to explain. It's a, a difficult subject to understand, and, and it's difficult not just because of its intrinsic complexity, but also, and perhaps more so, because you have become dull of hearing. You have become, in other words, sluggish in your understanding. You have not been paying as close attention to what you have heard as, as you should have been. And this makes what is already a somewhat complex and difficult doctrine to explain even harder for you to take in because you have become dull of hearing. Now, now, what we, we see here and what we'll see, I hope, as we go through this passage is that the, the problem with the Hebrews was not that they weren't well taught. That wasn't their problem. You just have to look at the first four or five chapters to appreciate that this was a well-taught congregation. Nor was their problem that they, they just didn't have the ability to, to understand Christian doctrine. Again, you can look through the book of, of, of Hebrews and, and, and see the, the, the depth into which the writer goes. And there is no way that he would have done that if he knew that this congregation had no ability to understand uh, some of these complex matters that he expounds to them. Now, their, their basic problem was this, that despite being a well-taught congregation, and despite having ability to understand what they were being taught, the Hebrews had become spiritually lethargic. They'd become spiritually indolent and, and, and lazy, spiritually sluggish. They, they were not as wholehearted in their commitment to the gospel as they ought to have been. 
And this is why the writer then goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now what he is saying here is essentially this. He's saying you should be doing better than you are. You should be doing better than you are. That is his basic message in these verses. Given what you have been taught, given what you know, given all of your privileges, you really should be living as spiritual adults. You should be living as spiritual adults who are feeding on and living out the solid food of Christian teaching. Spiritual adults who are in a position to teach younger and newer Christians, to teach perhaps even those who are not yet Christians, to teach them what he calls the basic principles of the oracles of God, the the core truths of God's revelation. These are core truths. These are basic principles that you have already learned, that you know, I've taught you them, and you should be in a position to to be teaching others. This is what you should be doing. But instead, you are behaving, at the moment, you are behaving like spiritual infants who need milk, as though you need the milk of what you might call the ABCs of the gospel. And I think what we see almost beneath the surface here is a tone of real anguish and even heartbreak and, and sorrow. What, what the preacher is saying to them, I think, beneath the surface of these words that, re, that we read is, what, what's happened to you? What, what's got into you? There is, I think, a plaintive note in, in the rebuke that he issues here. He is, he is saddened by their, their current spiritual condition. And he is saddened, he is in anguish because, and we know this from other parts of the letter, the Hebrews had at one time been running very well. They had been living as spiritual adults, feeding on the solid food of core Christian doctrine. They had been at one time living as mature and wholehearted, adult-like Christians. We read, for example, in chapter 10 of him saying that they had at one time been willing to endure the hard struggle of being a Christian in a hostile world with sufferings for their faith. They'd been willing to go through much difficulty. They had been at one time wholehearted in their commitment to Christ. But now, now there's been a regression. This is the issue. It's not as if they've always been spiritual infants and they've never made any progress. The issue is that they had made progress. They were living as as spiritual adults, feeding on the solid food of God's word. But now there's been a regression. Now they are not as bold or as courageous or as committed as they had once been. They are, in a word, backslidden Christians. 
That's the particular problem that the writer to the Hebrews is uh, addressing here. Backslidden Christians who have, as he says, become unskilled in the word of righteousness. A phrase which, which means, I think, that for the time being at least, the Hebrews had ceased to practice the righteousness required by God's word. They had ceased, for the time being at least, to live out the full implications of the gospel. And it seems as if, in particular, they had become rather fearful of what living a radically obedient Christian life might bring. It seems as if they had become fearful that it might cause them great discomfort, persecution, maybe even death. And so what we see in this opening uh, paragraph of our passage is that the, the Hebrews' dullness of hearing, as he puts it in verse 11, their spiritual infancy, as he describes it in verse 12, their lack of skill in the word of righteousness, as he says in verse 13, wasn't really to do with a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding. It was actually to do with a lack of putting such knowledge into practice. The Hebrews knew how they should have been living. They had been living that way at one point. But their problem was they had regressed. They had backslidden. Their deficiency, we might say, was moral rather than intellectual. And this is actually, I think, confirmed by what is said in verse 14, where he says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You can see that in this verse there is a clear moral and ethical flavor it's about training about constant practice about distinguishing good from evil and and the image that is is presented here is is sporting in nature the 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 picture that is conjured up by these words in verse 14 is of a gymnast training hard practicing day in and day out so that they can they can perform well and, and what is being said here is that Christians are to train hard. Christians are to discipline themselves. Christians are to, are to work and to be diligent. And the gym, as it were, that we train in is the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's through God's Word that our spiritual muscles are exercised and, and built up and strengthened. And then you see, and this is the key thing, then we put such training that we receive in God's Word into practice. And where do we put it into practice? We put it into practice in the world, in our daily lives, 
lived out in the world. The world is, as it were, the arena where we perform, where we live out our lives as Christians. And it's as we do that, as we apply what we learn in the word to the way that we live in the world, that our powers of discernment, our spiritual and moral faculties become stronger. They become sharper. They become healthier. We, we grow in maturity as we live out wholeheartedly all that we've learned in the word in our daily lives lived out in the world. And so what we see in verses 11 to 14 is the the preacher rebuking the Hebrews for not living the mature Christian lives that they they should be. And for not living the mature Christian lives that they had once been living. This is a rebuke to Christians who have backslidden, who have regressed, who have become Dull of hearing, spiritually sluggish. That is the particular problem here in the Hebrews congregation. Now, as we apply this paragraph to ourselves, I, I think it's fair to say that we here at CPC are a a relatively well-taught congregation. I think here at CPC there is a pretty good level of biblical knowledge. There's a strong grasp amongst a number of you I know of, of what the Bible teaches, of what the Bible actually says. And that is great. That is important, of course it is. But I think the basic challenge that this passage presents to each one of us is this are are you actually putting what you know into practice are you training yourself day in day out in the word and then constantly practicing that word constantly practicing what you have been trained in or have you become spiritually sluggish Have you backslidden? Do you who know an awful lot yet fail to put what you know into practice in your daily lives? Have you, in a sense, retreated into a Christian comfort zone? You know, the Hebrews lived in a hostile world. The first century was a pretty hostile world for Christians. And what we can glean from the whole of this letter is that after starting well, they had retreated in the face of such hostilities. They had regressed in their spiritual maturity. And we live in a pretty hostile world. In a world, I think, that is just getting more and more hostile by the day. And in that context, I think it is relatively easy for us 
to, for example, stay quiet so that we don't stand out. I think it's a temptation we face to to kind of hide our Christianity, to not live out what we know, to not live out the full implications of the gospel for fear that we might offend, for fear that we might then face trouble, persecution, the loss of our job, whatever it might be. It's very easy, I think, in our context to retreat into a sort of Christian comfort zone so that our lives are not more difficult than they otherwise would be. But the question that these verses ask of each one of us here this morning, including me, is will you live boldly for Christ in a hostile world? Will you live out all that you know from the word and thereby see your powers of discernment grow? Thereby see your spiritual faculties grow stronger? Or will you, because it's easy to do so, retreat from the world and not live out all that you know from God's word and then, as a result, become increasingly weak and fruitless and sluggish as a Christian? So that is the rebuke that is issued here to the Hebrews congregation. Do not be spiritually sluggish. Do not retreat from the world. Live out the full implications of the word of righteousness. And then following on from that, the second thing we see the writer doing is is calling on these Christians to grow in spiritual maturity. Having rebuked them for their sluggishness, for their dullness of hearing, he goes on to say, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and let us go on to maturity. Here is the chief exhortation of this passage. Let us grow up. Let us become the Christians we ought to be. May you return to the Christians that you once were. Now, it's important to say as we as we look at these verses that leaving the uh, elementary doctrine of Christ, as he puts it, which, by the way, I take to be more or less synonymous with what he earlier calls the basic principles of the oracles of God, those core foundational truths. Leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ does not, of course, mean completely forgetting about the ABCs of the gospel. It doesn't mean that you never need to remind yourself of such gospel basics. We, I don't know about you, but I always need to remind myself of the basics of the gospel. That's one reason we come to church every week. We need that. And he certainly doesn't mean in this verse that we are to have a sort of dismissive attitude towards such truths. 
as though they are beneath us now. And for that matter, we should never have a dismissive attitude towards those who have only just learned such truths, who are young in the faith, who are babes in Christ. Rather, leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ has this meaning. It means building on the foundation of such doctrine. It means standing so firmly upon such a doctrinal foundation that you then advance into a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of that doctrine so that you can then put that deeper knowledge and understanding of Christian doctrine into practice in your life so that you become a more fully mature Christian. I suppose it's a bit like the Greek scholar who first had to learn the Greek alphabet but who can now read Homer's Iliad in the original. It's not that they've forgotten the Greek alphabet. It's not that they're dismissive of the Greek alphabet. Far from it. It's just that they've left learning it behind in the sense of building upon such basic knowledge so that they might enter into more advanced areas of study. And the same basic principle applies to our lives as Christians. We We first, in the school of Christ, as it were, we first learn the elementary doctrine of Christ. We lay that foundation. There are certain truths we need to know. And then we leave it behind in the sense of building upon it so that we enter into a greater understanding of such foundational doctrine. So what is the elementary doctrine of Christ? that, according to our author, constitutes that foundation that doesn't need to keep on being relayed. Well, you can see that he mentions six foundation stones. He talks about repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. He talks about instruction, about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are, according to our author, the elementary doctrines of Christ. And I think you can legitimately take these six elementary doctrines as three couplets. So you have, in the first place, repentance from dead works, And of faith towards God. It is likely, I think, that this particular couplet, repentance from dead works and faith towards God, does have a specific meaning within the book of Hebrews. We see later on that dead works refer to those external regulations associated with the Levitical priesthoods. And so repenting of those dead works has the specific meaning of turning to Christ as your high priest. But I think it does also have a more general meaning. It speaks of how your Christian life begins. It speaks of how you, from your perspective, are saved. How you are saved by repenting from your sins and by putting your trust in Christ. And then we have instruction about washings or baptisms and the laying on of hands. And again, I think there is a specific meaning um, 
to this particular couplet. In Hebrews, there is a contrast drawn between the ritual washings of the old covenant system and the purification that we have by the blood of Christ. There is, moreover, a contrast between the priests who were appointed by means of the imposition of hands according to the law and Jesus who was appointed high priest by the oath of God. But I think, too, there is a more general meaning here. I think it refers also to the new covenant practice of baptizing individuals and of laying hands on them as the waters of baptism were applied. A ritual that, of course, symbolized the uh, recipient's entrance into the church. And then the final couplet, we have instruction about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, which again, in the context of Hebrews, probably refers to the truth that only through the blood of our resurrected heavenly high priest can we face that coming judgment with any degree of confidence. And so here is the elementary doctrine of Christ that we are to build upon in our quest for spiritual maturity. They are doctrines, you'll see, that are to do with salvation, with the church, and with the future life. And what is so vital for you to notice is that this elementary doctrine is all centered in Jesus Christ. I suppose that's obvious in in the way it's described, the elementary doctrine of Christ. But these foundational doctrines are all centered in Jesus Christ. It is, after all, through Christ, our high priest, that we are saved as we repent and believe. It is through Christ, our high priest, that we are washed clean and are incorporated into the church. And it is through Christ our high priest that we look forward in hope and in confidence to our future resurrection on the day of judgment. Christ is the very foundation of our faith. And what we also need to say is this, that Christ is the perfection of our faith. Christ is both the cornerstone and the capstone. Christ is the beginning of the whole process of growing up as a Christian, of becoming spiritually mature. He stands there right at the beginning, and he is also its end, its goal. And brothers and sisters, Christian maturity is really all about digging down more deeply into the foundation that is Jesus Christ, so that you will then grow up more fully into your head, Jesus Christ. That is what Christian maturity is all about. Digging down deeply into Christ, your high priest, knowing him better so that you will then grow up into Christ, your head. The way down is the way up. So will you do this? Will you dig down more deeply into the foundation of your faith, which is Christ, so that you will then grow up more fully 
into the image of Jesus Christ. Will you do that? Yes, you will. This we will do, if God permits. This we will do, according to God's will. The writer here has rebuked firmly the Hebrews for their spiritual sluggishness. He has called on them to to go on in spiritual maturity. They need to do these things. They need to take action. But here he highlights the fact that we must always remember that we will only be able to do these things by God's blessing. Our growth in grace, our digging down deeply into Christ so that we will grow up into Christ, depends from beginning to end upon God's grace, upon his blessing, upon his will. Effort, diligence, hard work is required on your part. Absolutely. But what we need to understand this morning is that such Effort and diligence and striving and hard work. Such power to live boldly and courageously as Christians in an increasingly hostile world will not and cannot come from within yourself. It comes entirely and exclusively from God. And the good news this morning for you, brothers and sisters, is that it is very much God's will for you to go on to maturity. And therefore, he will provide you with all the resources that you need. Indeed, God has already given you all that you need in his son and by his spirit. So do not lose heart. Perhaps some of you this morning have backslidden. You become spiritually sluggish. You are not the Christian that you know you should be. You're not the Christian that you know you once were. Do not lose heart. Do not despair. God will help you. His will for your life is to turn you more and more into the likeness of his son. And he will do all that he plans for you. He will accomplish his sovereign predestinating will. He will make you just like Jesus Christ. Sometimes you hear people say the following. They say, you know, Jesus Christ saved you despite all that you are. And there's truth in that. He saved you, although you are such a wretched sinner. And there is nothing lovely about you. It's true. Jesus Christ did save you despite all that you are. But I actually think it would be more accurate to say the following. Jesus Christ saved you because... He saw what he would make you by his grace. He saw, as it were, the end from the beginning. He saw what you would become as he worked in you day by day through his word and by his spirit. Why did Jesus Christ save you from your sin? He saved you from your sin in order to make you sinless. Why did he save you from eternal death? 
He saved you from eternal death in order to make you fully alive. Why did he save you from hell? He saved you from hell in order to make you heavenly. That is his great purpose in saving you, to make you perfect, to make you just like himself. And this he will do. He will fulfill all of his saving, all of his sanctifying, all of his glorifying purposes in your life. He who himself was made perfect. Not that he was ever sinful, but he who being made perfect, as we read in verse nine. And who became thereby the source of your eternal salvation. He will make you. His precious brothers and sisters, just like himself, according to the uniqueness of your personality. Jesus Christ will mature you. Therefore, knowing this, fully assured of this, let us go on to maturity. Let us leave behind our spiritual sluggishness and in the assurance of Christ's grace, help and strength, let us go on to deeper and greater spiritual maturity. May we, brothers and sisters, become the people that Jesus Christ died to make us become. Amen.